Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Grabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we've got a very fun show for you guys. Going to be talking some NFL, some NBA. If you're watching on YouTube, that'll be two separate shows. But we just couldn't go past today without talking about some of the big stuff that has happened in the NFL. And we'll start with... What was hyped up as probably the game of the year, the Super Bowl rematch on Monday Night Football between the Eagles and the Chiefs. Philly, of course, comes out with a win in this one, but it was in the hands of Marquez Valdez-Scanling, who dropped a wide-open go-ahead touchdown pass with under two minutes remaining, which, Logan, continues a concerning theme throughout this year, which is the play of Kansas City's receivers. So, We've talked about them and how we've maintained faith in them as the AFC favorite. Do you think they can overcome that receiver play and win a Super Bowl this year? I guess we'll find out. I would probably bet on it right now, but it's it's almost ironic to me, Carson. I want to give you some flowers to start out the show. I mean, it's almost as you drew it up in our predictions, man. You said verbatim, verbatim. I think their receiving issues will come back to bite them on the ass. And I mean, come on. Karstradamus over here, man. Nasty Nas. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> couldn't have couldn't have cooked any better. I, I guess we'll find out if the Chiefs can overcome their wideout play. But this is the margin that scared me. This is the margin that can lose you a playoff game uh, in a one-game scenario. You have two red zone turnovers, uh, the Mahomes interception and the Kelsey fumble against a team that can sustain drives. And I bet on what I expected to happen. And what I bet on did happen. Uh, I said the Chiefs were going to win. I said Hurts would come up short on the final drive like in the Super Bowl. And I expected Mahomes to do superhuman things. It was lining up perfectly. I mean, it was setting up for Hurts to have a chance to win the game if MVS comes down with that ball. I mean, that's the one play, the swing factor that made the difference for me. The QB play between Hurts and Mahomes. And I was banking on 
them connecting for that deep shot to give the Chiefs the lead there at the end of the game. I don't know, man. Rasheed Rice, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Justin Watson are your three leading receivers. The Chiefs weren't the only team with this issue at the trade deadline. We laid out the Bills, a lot of other contenders that were really desperate for number twos or number threes behind Travis Kelsey. And the difference in this game isn't just the MVS drop. It's the Justin Watson drop on the third and fourth that ends a drive. Uh, The Chiefs this season lead the NFL in drops. Uh... Watson is up there, MVS is up there, Kadarius Toney is up there, and it continues a really concerning trend with the Chiefs. I'm sure you saw it on the broadcast as well. It's their third straight second half without any points. It's a really concerning trend. That being said, you know, I thought the Chiefs did a really good job against the Eagles' pass rush. I believe in this defense, and Chris Jones is a game-wrecking defensive weapon. I thought he was imperative to the Chiefs slowing down the Eagles' offensive attack. I don't know. I mean, I, the Chiefs, it took the Chiefs shooting themselves in the foot twice, and it took some back-breaking drops. I mean, that is the yeah. margin in individual games. I, I don't know. I think they have one of the worst receiving rooms in the entirety of the NFL if you exclude Travis Kelsey from that mix. When you just look at the wide yeah. receiving room, I think it's up there for one of the worst in the league. It can come back to bite them on the ass. It certainly can. I wouldn't bet on it. I still think... For my money, the Chiefs are still the best team in football. They've got a great defense. They've got the best quarterback in football. That's all I need to buy into. I don't need anything else. Like, can this happen again? Certainly. Do I expect it to? Kind of. These receivers aren't that great. Uh, But I just can't bring myself to betting against Patrick Mahomes when I see what he does on the field. I saw what he did. What I expected Patrick Mahomes to do, he came through and he did. But... The drops, are they're killers. It's a team sport. That's why it's not an individual sport, man. I don't want it to bite them on the ass, but it certainly is the weakest aspect of this Chiefs team. I do think they can overcome it. I don't view it necessarily as a fatal flaw, something that eliminates them from these conversations among the absolute best teams in football. But it is rare that you can look at a three-loss team and say two of your losses fall directly on the wide receivers. Week one, Kadarius Tony alone caused a 10-point swing with the pick right off of his hands that the Lions took back for a touchdown and then with another gimme drop that would have put them in range for a go-ahead field goal. In this game, it's not just the NVS drop. You mentioned a couple others, but on that final drive alone, Kelsey on an easy third and two right off his hands. Now, I don't worry about Travis Kelsey, but just a symbol of the luck that they have had from their receiving core this year. And then, on that 4th and 25, two plays after the MVS drop, Mahomes somehow finds a way to get that ball right on Justin Watson's hands. And I'm not saying that that's an easy catch. It's in traffic. He's got contact that he's dealing with. But still, to get that ball in his hands, if you had a really high-level receiver, maybe they do make a play there. And The drops have just remained such a concerning thing for them. And the way that the receiver play has limited this offense, it's always felt inevitably like no matter who you put out there with Mahomes as receivers, as long as he he has Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid, you're going to be a dominant offense. Not just a good one, but last year they had the number one scoring offense in football. They put up 38 points in a Super Bowl win, and Juju was their number two who I guess is okay. Well, he was their number one receiver, their number two target. But then the depth of that group, as we've said, I think improved coming into this year. So it sort of felt like he had checked that off the box. And then 
I guess they've made it even more of a challenge this year because they're ninth in yards per play. They're 14th in scoring. They have scored 28 points twice all year. Last year, they averaged over 29. Again, that led the league. In Mahomes' first season, Logan, which, of course, they had Tyreek. That was a different ballgame. But they only missed that 28-point mark three times, and it was when they scored 26 and then 27 twice. So the level of game-to-game elite offensive production that we are used to, this group just hasn't shown us that they're capable. In fact, there have been very few, like, real highs. That Chargers game, they dominated but it's really just two very good offensive games from this year. So I still think they can overcome it because this is the best defense of Mahomes' career, and he is still indisputably the best quarterback in football. But I did not think that it would be this much of a problem through 10 weeks. After week one, that was like the nightmare scenario, and then it was like, yeah, this could really limit this team. But then Rasheed Rice started to come along, and you felt, okay, these guys sort of fill their roles. It's probably enough. And I guess that's still where I come down on this because I have so much faith in Mahomes in the defense in a flawed AFC. But it's a concern. It is. It's a major concern. And I think you lay out what's going to be different about this year is it's a completely different formula that the Chiefs are going to have to win with. You know what I mean? Because they don't have that volatility and kind of explosivity in their offense week to week. It's just not there. And, you know, you mentioned that People thought that this is the deepest group that Mahomes had coming into this year. This was by far my least favorite group that he's ever had. And a big part of that was losing Juju. And I know that Juju's not even, I mean, he's barely getting PT in New England. That's an abysmal offense. And I know that Juju has struggled with his fair share of drops and stuff this year in New England. But what Juju provides to a team is really valuable. I mean, out of the slot, great hands, tough as nails kind of guy, just a reliable guy that you can go to. Like, I thought that was a major, major blow to the receiving core, and it's kind of what they've needed. Like, with MVS, you do have the deep threat, right? You see the separation that MVS creates game to game. It's just about catching the freaking ball, man. But Justin Watson stinks. I think Rasheed Rice is a good number two. I really do think they're just lacking one more guy that has reliable hands that they could go to. And I I don't know. Like, like we said, man, it, it could be- come back to bite them. I'm not going to bet on it, but it's... It's crazy because, I mean, if they have that piece, I mean, I think that they're a, I mean, they're a 24 a night, 25 a night kind of offense, right? If they just have one more guy. I mean, that's what it feels like, right? 24, 25 a night is still underwhelming, disappointing for the Chiefs. But, yeah, Juju was a guy who they could turn to in the Super Bowl, and I think he had seven catches in that game. He was reliably open. He was very solid. And I think the value of just a solid number two like that, maybe I – underestimated because I was looking at the totality of the depth of this core and saying, okay, I think that they have more decent guys, but it is a flaw and we're going to have to see improvement there because opposite them, the Eagles just keep on chugging along, man. They are the only one loss team in football sitting at nine and one. Do you feel like they are clearly the best in the NFL right now? No, I don't. Like I said, I, I would still, I think it's neck and neck between these two. Uh, the Eagles and the Chiefs. I think they're 1A and 1B. And again, I know that we just saw the Eagles win, so take this how you may. I still think the Chiefs are the better football team. I'm going to take them because of the difference that I see in QB play. Jalen Hurts is phenomenal. Jalen Hurts has been great this year after a really slow start. I would still take Mahomes over Hurts. I would still take the Chiefs with the best defense they've ever had. But the one thing, man, 
Damn, the Eagles can run the ball. Like, you it sure is can. remarkable, man. I, I don't know the last NFL team. I guess the Baltimore Ravens consistently year to year since Lamar is, you know, cracked onto the scene in 2019. I'm trying to think about before that. I, I, there are very few NFL teams that come to mind that can run the ball like this consistently throughout the game. And it is a real weapon to have, especially in a game like this against Mahomes, where you see they force the two turnovers. And after that happens, when you force a Chiefs offense that is driven down the field twice to get there and you take points away from them, then it's just putting them in a vice. You know, it's just squeezing the life out of them and, you know, running that clock down. And that's what they did. Uh, that's such an invaluable weapon to have when it comes into playoff time too, man, just in terms of sustaining drives and third downs in the red zone, having the tush push to rely on. I don't. There are a few teams that can run the ball like the Eagles do, and that's still crazy valuable. The one crack in the Eagles' armor, because I think it's marginal, and it's ironic to me, because it's the same struggle that the Chiefs have on offense that the Eagles have on defense. I know that the Eagles' secondary doesn't like hearing it, but I do think that is the one Cracking their armor. Again, it comes down to that last play. MVS just breaks away if they catch. That's the difference in the game. And again, maybe the Eagles march down the field. Maybe that steal that game. Maybe they get vengeance for the Super Bowl with a game-winning drive that way, and they still win the game. But that, to me, is the steal, the, the crack in the Eagles' armor, that they allow these big shot plays and that they happen so frequently. That's what could kill them. But that's the distinct edge I'll give to the Eagles' offense over the Chiefs' offenses. I trust the Eagles to sustain drives and to keep things alive more than any other team in football. They got the best O-line in football. They got great running back weapons, and Jalen Hurts is a special rushing weapon. So I think the Eagles are great. I'm still not ready to crown them definitively as the NFL's best. I'd still give that honor to the Chiefs after a loss, man. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's where I'm at, and that's how much I believe in Patrick Mahomes in this defense. I don't think that's ridiculous because we can look at things exclusively in a results-based way, but sometimes that misses the bigger picture. Like this game was in the hands of Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who sure, maybe isn't the most reliable receiver, but you still expect him to make that catch nine times out of 10. I do think Philly is the best team in football right now, but I wouldn't say clearly. I think that the Niners have the highest ceiling in the NFL. When Brock Purdy is balling, they have obliterated people like nobody else this year. And if he can manage to find that proper balance of creation, of playmaking, without the dumb and the careless turnovers that bit him in that little skid throughout a playoff run, I think that's the best team in football. But I'm concerned enough about him doing that to where I look at Philly's reliable formula and I prefer it by a bit. Same goes for the Chiefs if they can really figure things out offensively because that defensive foundation is so solid, but the Eagles are just so consistent, man. They aren't blowing teams out of the water this year, but they are winning week in, week out. They are 25-3 and when Jalen Hurts starts since the beginning of last season. And although I look at these teams that have higher ceilings potentially, like Kansas City, like the Niners... I don't know if there is a good enough team out there to overcome how Philly just grinds you down physically, mm -hmm. how thoroughly they mm -hmm. control the game at the line of scrimmage, how elite their athletes on the perimeter offensively are. Like, everybody's flawed, but they dominate in a way, or at least they win in a way that feels most reliable week to week. That being said, they have been outgained significantly in these last three weeks by 98 or more yards in each of these last three games. So I just don't think there are any great teams this year. 
except maybe the Niners when Purdy is playing at that level. But they lost three games in a row, so we can't call them a truly great team really? over the totality of this season. I don't know. I would say there are four great teams in the great? rest. Great? Really? I, don't know. I mean, I think Baltimore, Philly, Kansas City, and San Francisco are the great teams. If I had to bet on a final four right now, that would be my final four. I, you don't think those teams are great? No, I think those are four really good teams. But I think all of them have had bad losses this year, bad showings. I mean, Illy, Philly's point differential is plus six per game. The Chiefs are in that same ballpark. Like, there aren't teams who are running through everybody mean, like the Eagles with Hurts last year were, okay. where they were 14-1 and one when he played. It feels like most seasons there is that candidate that is just dominating consistently. And Philly is winning almost every week, but they're not dominating like that. Yeah, I get what you're saying. In in comparison to, you know, relative... I wouldn't say every year we have that. I would say for a while we have, like, the teams that stand out in my mind, like, you know, the 2011 Packers, the Brady's Patriots every but year. But I'm not even talking on that level. I'm saying, like, last year's Chiefs and Eagles, I think we're both concretely better than any team this season yeah you know i i think i'd probably agree with that like maybe last year's niners too they can reach that ceiling again but mm -hmm. the run that they were on at the end of the year where they won whatever it was 11 straight and somebody could get hot like that in the home stretch here but it's just up to this point i don't feel like anybody is separated from the pack at that level yeah i, I think i'm with you there but it really did feel like last year once we got to week 13 or you know, through the through the early part of the schedule into the back half of the year, it, it did feel like we were going to get Chiefs Eagles, and it was almost a foregone conclusion. It still does feel wide open to an extent this year. Let me ask you this: We are praising the Chiefs, the Eagles, and the Niners. I know this is a crazy hypothetical, and we're still three months out from <laughs> from the Super Bowl. Is there a chance all three of those teams miss the big game? Ooh, is there a chance? I think it is possible if the Cowboys play to their utmost potential, but I would not bet on it, especially because Philly's going to have a bye. The Cowboys are going to have to play on the road opening weekend. Well, I think they're going to beat whoever they play in that first playoff game. And then Baltimore could beat Kansas City. It's possible. I would still pick Chiefs-Eagles. Same as things ended last year. Same as I predicted before this year. I think I would take Chiefs-Niners right now. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that too. The other thing that is interesting that was born of this game is that Jalen Hurts became the MVP betting favorite after a pretty underwhelming game individually, which I just find really interesting because we mentioned the Cowboys and I was just thinking, has Jalen Hurts really been better than Dak Prescott this year? Like both of them started quite slow. And then have come on very strong. They're both leading top five scoring offenses. The Cowboys actually slightly higher than the number two scoring offense. Dak has been, frankly, more consistently great since he did take that leap within this season. They've both been very good, but Hurts has, I would say, been a little bit less consistent. And if you look at the totality of their production, Hurts 28-40 total yards between passing and rushing. 24 total touchdowns. 12 turnovers. Dak 27-45. 
little bit behind, 21 touchdowns, but only six turnovers, has done a really good job taking care of the football outside of like that one game this year. He's averaging just barely more yards per pass attempt, but then when you consider the gap in support that these two have, the difference in line play, the difference in skill position talent, like Dak really might have been the better player this year, and nobody is mentioning Dak Prescott in any MVP conversations this year. So it just feels like a strange dynamic this year where it's sort of by default going best quarterback on the best team. And you've been pushing for the Tyreek MVP, at least in being in those conversations. I'm really starting to get there. If it's Tyreek, if it's a defensive player like Miles Garrett or TJ Watt who are completely carrying their teams to competence, I just don't know. This is the most underwhelming elite quarterback year in a long time. I concur 100%. Another guy that should be up there for Depoy or MVP. Uh, another TD this uh, past Sunday. Uh, you mentioned Dak as an MVP candidate. Uh, on the other side Bland. of the ball for yeah. the boys, Deron Bland has been balling. Six picks, four TDs. It's like, I don't know, man. Let's buck the trend, dude. Let's get a little weird. Like, if this is the year... I, I'm with you, dude. I'm kind of over it to the point where, you know, it's like, it's almost like Peyton's 2009 MVP, and I don't want to rag on Peyton too bad. Like, Peyton had a great year. He was by far the best quarterback of that year, right? But, I mean, it was 4,000 yards. I think it was under 30 TDs, or it was barely over 30. You know, it wasn't a crazy uh, QB year, the way we saw with Peyton in 04 or Brady in 07. Chris Johnson that year runs for 2,000 yards, leads the Titans to an 8-8 eight eight record. This is with Vince Young, who I love Vince Young. I'm probably one of the biggest Vince Young guys you're going to get. He had like, you know, 12 TDs to like 15 picks that year. He makes the Pro Bowl. They give all this love to Vince Young. It's like Chris Johnson, you know, had some of the, like, I think he top five most scrimmage yards in a single season ever, completely put that Titans offense on his back, got them to the playoffs. It's like, when a skill position guy is doing that, I believe Johnson wins Offensive Player of the Year, deservedly so. I don't know. I don't understand why we pigeonhole these guys to just offensive or defensive. To me, it's like, I think you mentioned this a couple shows ago, Carson. If we were to do it like that, why not just roll out a full slate of awards like college football does and we'll do it like that? So, to me, it's give it to the most impactful guy on the field. And to me, yeah, dude. I'd go Tyreek. Tell me when to stop, man. Tyreek, Miles, TJ, Deron Bland. Like, I don't know. I feel like all of those guys, with how, like you said, how underwhelming the QB class has been, all of those guys are extremely valid uh, MVP mm -hmm. candidates. And if we are giving it to a quarterback, it should be Lamar. Lamar has played the best football of any quarterback this year. Regardless of what the touchdown totals say, he has been balling. But you know who hasn't been balling, Logan, is the Pittsburgh Steelers. But, ding dong, the Wicked Witch is dead. Matt Canada has officially been fired. And, of course, we have to talk about that, man, because I don't know if there's anything that you've pushed for more in recent memory. So, congratulations, pal. How does it feel? Feels great. Feels yeah. great. This is this was the Steelers' Super Bowl. You know, we can't ever get to one because our offense is so limited. This is our Super Bowl, man. Um, my friend of the show, Donnie texted me, uh, Donnie texted me immediately, something along those lines, the witch is dead. Nice. I, I just sent him back. Hallelujah. You know, uh, this mm -hmm. is a glorious day. It, it really reminded me after, you know, we talked about this game, uh, after it happened against the Browns, uh, in our recap, you talked about Ken Dorsey getting fired and how it mirrored kind of Matt Canada. 
I really do still feel the same way uh, to how I did last game. I put a lot of that blame on Kenny Pickett. This wasn't the game to, like, fire Matt Canada afterwards. That game was not on Matt Canada. I put that game way more on Kenny Pickett's shoulders, the way that Bills loss was on mental errors and stuff that was out of the control of Ken Dorsey. I felt like this game was lost out of control of Matt Canada. The final play uh, where the Steelers had life, Kenny drops back under uh, under center. Uh, they've got three wideouts, three receivers on the right side. They've got one receiver on the left side. They're running a crossing pattern with the receiver on the left side, and two receivers on the right side are running goes on the right. The idea of this concept is to get everybody on the right side of the field and to completely open up the left side of the field. The running back goes to the flat, takes the linebacker out of the left side of the field. The left side's wide open. The 20 yards out from the end zone to the 20-yard line is wide open on the left half of the side. Deontay Johnson runs a slant to that wide-open patch of grass. It is an elementary throw. Carson, I believe me or you could do that. We're not NFL QBs by any means, but... If I, hadn't yard... go, if I hadn't gotten hurt, bro, if I True. hadn't gotten hurt, If you hadn't I had swear. that knee injury in high school, you would have gone pro. I had offers you guys would not believe. You guys wouldn't get it, man. Carson was a five-star dude. D1, bona fide. I don't want to talk about it. Scholarships, man. All kinds of NIL deals. It, devastating. But we could have made that throw back in our primes. It's it's pretty easy. 15 yards. I mean, dude, your dad used to drop it in the bucket to you when you play out in the yard, man. It's an easy throw. And what does Kenny do? Kenny has it there. And I don't know if it's because he's not tall and he can't see it. I don't know if it's his pocket awareness, his feel. It's this. It's I mean, it's a quick little drop. Deontay runs into the end zone. We take the lead. Browns get the ball back with an opportunity to win the game. Instead, Kenny does what he always does, and he bails out of a clean pocket and walks right into a sack. We should have won that game. Matt Canada drew up a great play to win us that football game, and Kenny didn't execute. And that's kind of the crux of how I feel about this firing. Matt Canada is a problem with the Steelers' offense, and we have gotten rid of one of the problems, but we have certainly not eliminated all of the problems. Kenny Pickett is a major part of that problem. I did a whole spiel on where Kenny falls short, the inconsistency uh, in the miscommunications with the receivers, how inaccurate he has been, how limited he is mobility-wise and in terms of play extension. Kenny's not great, and Kenny still does put a hard cap on the Steelers' offense. So, yeah, I mean, cool. We Hopefully, these guys are better play callers. Stepping in for the Steelers, we have two new offensive coordinators. One of them is going to be calling plays, and one of them is going to be heading the offense. Uh, it's Mike Sullivan, and I believe a former Steelers running back, uh, Eddie Faulkner. Uh, I think Faulkner will be calling plays. Uh, Mike Sullivan, uh, former offensive coordinator for the 2012-13 to Bucks and the 2016-17 to Giants. So, at least we have guys who have NFL experience and some fresh blood in the building. Again, I think this is a firing by Tomlin, very similar to the firing that Sean McDermott did of Dorsey. I think it's more fire some, fire the guys up in the locker room, get some life in there, try to get some, some will into these offensive players and light a fire under their ass that wasn't there, moreover than it has to do with the guy, but it, I think they mirror each other a lot. Don't get me wrong. I think he's part of the problem, but I think this is to, I don't know, the fire of the guys up in the building. But I also do think, I don't know, there was some stuff under the under the surface. Najee kind of went off to the press after the game. Deontay Johnson had a blow up on the sideline. So this also could just be the culmination of Matt Canada losing the entirety of the offensive mm -hmm. locker room too. I think that's, I think that has something to do with it as well.
I see what you're saying in terms of this specific game does not fall yeah. on Matt Canada. Yeah. Just like the Bills having 12 dudes on the field or Josh Allen dropping a handoff doesn't fall on Ken Dorsey. But the totality of the resume and the body of work from those guys in both cases justified a firing, especially for Matt Canada. Man, and that is not to say that Kenny is free of blame. I don't think Kenny's good. I don't think Najee's good. I don't think the weapons are particularly good. Like, generally, when Jalen Warren is him, though, bro. Jalen Warren is him, but guess what, Logan? Najee gets one and a half times the carry. He gets far more touches. But generally, when an offense is this bad, it's because a lot of things are bad. So it's not to sit here and say, oh my God, removing Matt Canada is going to be a cure-all. That's also not to say that Matt Canada is blameless just because other dudes are bad. I think he is very clearly a bad play caller, probably the least creative play caller in football. And this is something that everybody has been hammering for since before the season. Nobody has liked a single thing that Matt Canada has done up to this point. So I don't really care about the specific circumstances, bro. It's like, the Chargers could win by 20 next week, and if they fired Brandon Staley, I'd still True. be good with you it because it's a foregone conclusion <laughs> that they should have already done that weeks ago. Matt Canada is exactly in that same boat, man. I am happy for you and Steelers fans everywhere. I'm not confident in this offense taking a big leap forward. I mean, hopefully it gets a little bit better, but you haven't even really made the offensive coordinator higher that you want to. Do you expect Kenny to look different at all and this offense to look different at all? That's kind of my one big concern. I do expect the offense to look better. I expect us to hopefully we utilize Jalen Warren more. Just like the fact that I mean, he's at 6.2 yards per carry this season, man. I think it's the best mark in the NFL. It's, yeah. Like it's remarkable when Najee, and I know, I know that Najee has to, when he's in the backfield, they load up the box a little more because they're anticipating more runs when Najee's back there, so it's a little more difficult. But I think we should get Warren more involved. I think there needs to be more pre-snap motion. And honestly, Carson, I think the biggest thing isn't even about is Kenny just going to automatically look better? I think it's can one of these guys really enhance Kenny and draw up schemes and concepts and simplify things for him on the field? Because it's, it's something that I've said with Brock Purdy and Tua and... Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan, it's not just that two is great, and it's not just that Brock Purdy's great. They are. But it's because of how the guys behind them, the offensive coordinators, can drop simple stuff for them to dissect. It's like, you know, it's like you're giving Stevie Wonder to Kenny Pickett, man. It's like, Matt Canada's never played a down of football in his life. I, I, you know, he's not the guy that's going to be able to help him and say, oh, Kenny, here's what you're looking for on this play, or here's what this concept is attacking. I really think Kenny needs someone to help him to simplify things because he is limited as a quarterback. And no, if it's just Kenny, like I'm not expecting anything dramatically different. But if one of these guys is smart and can scheme up simple stuff for Kenny, that's where I would anticipate a real difference. But I want more creativity. I want Warren to get more touches. And that's really it. Those are my two things because I think Kenny is going to either figure it out or he's not. I want Warren to get more involved, and I want more creative schemes, concepts, and stuff that is deliberately attacking the defense instead of just saying, hey, Kenny, go out there and make some magic happen. Take this play. Go do with it. Honestly, 
<laughs> we're probably still going to be a bottom five to 10 offense in football. I'm not expecting dramatic changes, but hey, man, it's kind of hard to get worse from here, isn't it, Carson? Certainly is, man. And what's remarkable is I still think the Steelers are probably going to make the playoffs, bro. Next five weeks, Bengals with Jake Browning, Arizona Cardinals, New England Patriots, Colts, Bengals with Jake Browning Here's again. Here's my prediction. Yeah. We missed the playoffs. I still got to rock the tube. I mean, bro, there's nothing I would love more than you wearing a toupee for a week and then hopefully loving it so much, mm -hmm. loving how you look with waves so much that you adopt it for the rest of your life. But that's a lot of easy games, man. Nothing's easy for the Steelers, but they do usually beat bad teams just on the back of those timely defensive plays. Either way, happy for you. Uh, sorry, Matt Canada, but you really had this one coming for a long time. There's so much to be thankful for, family, friends, food, and NFL football all week long. DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping your Thanksgiving week full of action. New customers can bet just 5 bucks on the NFL action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. No matter your appetite, there's something for you. Money lines, parlays, props, live bets, and so much more. You name it, they've got it. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can bet five on the NFL Thanksgiving action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions terms and responsible gaming resources let's pivot to basketball because one of the most exciting stories of this young season so far has been the strength of young cores around the league i can't remember a year in recent memory where there were this many extremely young cores in just last year like the midst of a real rebuild that suddenly are not just competitive are legitimately really good and I think the Thunder are clearly the best example of that. They were already further along last year than most of the other teams that we're talking about. They were very competitive, but this is a team that is playing at an elite level right now. When was the last time you feel like there was a rebuild this successful? Like, What sort of rarefied air are the Thunder in with what they're doing right now on this timeline? I don't really know. I, I the the closest like in terms of recent uh yeah. rebuilds that were really rapid, the first one that came to mind for me was the mid 2010s Boston Celtics, you know, uh when uh -huh. they get rid of all those draft picks, kind of mirrored in the way the Thunder did it too by trading away some of their older players for draft capital uh and getting a star in return. But I mean, you know, the Celtics it was really quick from 2014 or 25 and 27 uh, 27 and 2018 and 2020, they're in the Eastern Conference Finals. 2022, they're in the NBA Finals. You know, and they do that mostly through the draft. They have a you know a crazy year from Isaiah Thomas. They get Kyrie in the fold, Gordon Hayward. But it was mostly through Tatum and Brown that they've rebuilt. But the thing that makes the Thunder really unique, Carson, is that they found building blocks on both sides of the basketball. And 
I don't know. I mean, they perfectly complement each other. That's a really astounding thing to me is that both of these guys are going to take separate sides of the floor and they're going to make the team great. I, I don't know. Like, I, they have two superstars in SGA and Chet Holmgren is what I feel like. I, it, it just seemed easy for them. They're 10-4 and four right now. They're number eight in offensive rating. They're number four in defensive rating. And I'll start with defense. That was the area where I was most encouraged by the Thunder coming into this season because every Thunder game last year, no matter if it was the second guys, the third guys, if SGA was out there or not, the team played hard. They were a feisty, competitive team. They were going to crash the glass hard. They were going to play physical, and they were going to defend you really well. But they really lacked in size and strength on the inside. And Chet is astounding. Chet might be the rookie of the year right now over Wemby, man. Um, He's holding players... 11% below their average field goal percentage inside of six feet on 10 field goals defended per game. The feel defensively, the positioning, the timing. Uh, Chet transforms his defense. He's averaging two blocks a night, you know, while providing great offense, uh, too, to this team. I mean, he's transformed them there. He makes them great there. And then on the other end of the floor, SGA can go get buckets and set up all his guys. 36 and six, two and a half steals a night. I. I don't know, Carson. I mean, the Thunder legitimately have their two building blocks for the future. And then an awesome tertiary guy who I know you've loved since last season, man, and Jalen Williams, who's playing great defense too, 18-4-3. I mean, it's ridiculous that they have, they already have their building blocks that are superstars for the future. But Carson, they've got another third guy who's great. They've got movable young assets and they've got still a ton of draft capital here on out. I mean, the Thunder have... I don't know. I don't know how you could rebuild any better. Put Sam Presti in the Hall of Fame, man. Like, they are legitimately, I don't know who it is. I don't know what player it is. I mean, it feels like they are one move away, one superstar move away, or one more, I don't know, home run draft pick away from, like, being NBA Finals contenders. And I don't even think they're that far away now, man. The Thunder, the Thunder are awesome, dude. This may be the, <laughs> is this the greatest rebuild ever, Carson? Sam Presti is a genius, man. And by the way, this is the second time he's done this. When we're talking about the other great rebuilds in recent memory, the Celtics is a good one. Also weird, though, because it never felt like they launched into full rebuild. They had one year when they sucked, and then they were accruing picks from the Nets, who sucked because they made a terrible investment in that trade. They remained quite competitive throughout that all. I think you have to look at the big three Warriors as the most successful rebuild of the last, uh, probably of this century, because that uh, original core before the Kevin Durant trade, like the 2015 title team, four of those five starters were homegrown. Three of them were 24 younger that season. Steph was the old man of that group at 26. Like that is the actual dream of a rebuild. And then the Sixers, the process is the other one that you think of in recent years. I have higher expectations for OKC. I think that they can achieve more. And a big part of that is the latest crown jewel of this rebuild, that being Chet Holmgren, who I have always been such a big fan of. And Chet is a special rookie, man. He is not putting together your average rookie of the year campaign right now. The high level winning impact that you are seeing from him is something you see 
maybe every handful of years. He is defending the most field goals per game at the rim and holding opposing players 11% below their average field goal percentage while anchoring a top five defense in the NBA. Already one of the league's elite rim protectors, as we knew that he could be. He was a generational shot blocking talent and overall defensive prospect in college. While he is the most efficient 15 point per game scorer in the NBA with a 70% true shooting clip. He is an elite shooter who can do that in a number of ways as a pick and popper, as a trailer in transition, as a spot up guy. He's a big athletic target around the rim and he is an elite touch shot maker. He's shooting 54% in the paint outside the restricted area. That is a ridiculous number. So this is a guy who is lethal scoring on every level. And then the perimeter skill that you see from him, the ball handling and the playmaking for a seven footer. He has run 16 pick and rolls this year and they've scored with 73rd percentile efficiency out of those actions. He is so comfortable handling the ball and is a legitimately good passer and can see so much at his size that he is creating good offense for his teammates. But overwhelmingly, he's this elite play finisher and this elite defensive anchor. And that is the exact vision that I had for Chet when I called him the best prospect I had ever been able to evaluate. And I said that he was the best prospect since Anthony Davis, surpassed shortly after by Victor Wembanyama. But I was so, so high on Chet because he had every skill set that you want from a modern big outside of Nikola Jokic's passing, right? Certain things that you couldn't project on anybody, but everything that you value, the ability to protect the rim at a high level, to also defend on the perimeter, to knock down shots from the perimeter in a big time way, to finish around the rim, to play make. He had the level of versatility and the level of dominance in the most important categories that every single team drools over. So regardless of if he's ever going to be a 25 point per game guy, I didn't expect him to be. The efficiency and the two-way dominance is going to make him one of the most impactful winning players in the NBA today. And we are already seeing that. Like the rookie of the year race right now to me is not close. Wemby has a higher ceiling. Wemby is going to be able potentially to do some things on the basketball court that we have never seen from a guy of his size. But he is in a role right now where he's being asked to do too much and the shot quality that he's getting is just too low when he's struggling with efficiency and turnovers and all of these things. While Chet is already playing as one of the most effective bigs in basketball in the NBA today when it comes to winning impact. And I'll take that every single time when the raw production is also similar but I have felt like these are two generational big men and they have lived up to the hype and I think that a lot of people really forgot about Chet and a lot of people doubted Chet whether it was because of his build whether it was because people called him the next Kevin Durant in high school and that's never really what it was I don't think people really like Chet's personality I agree but he is a bona fide star talent in this league every bit as promising as SGA. And you're right, dude. I mean, they have superstar talents on both sides of the ball. That is so rare. And to have guys who are this bought into winning at this age, who contribute to winning at this level, to be second in net rating, to be a damn good team on both sides of the ball, it's so rare. They're also the most efficient three-point shooting team in the league right now, which I did not expect given Dort's inconsistency there, given the fact that Giddy is just bad, but... Lou has been flaming hot, adding a shooting five, the caliber of Chet. That has really raised the shooting ceiling of this team. And then, as we know, multiple great ball handlers, multiple elite athletes. Jalen is the perfect third star. 
case on another big hit in the draft, dude. Like, they're just doing everything perfectly. And this team is absolutely good enough right now to make a Western Conference Finals Ooh. run. Absolutely. That's what bro. I was waiting on. That was what I was waiting on. What are they missing? They have an elite defensive foundation. They have a top 10 player on the planet, probably in SGA. A guy who's going to give you elite offensive production night in and night out. And then they have dudes who can create alongside him, but also play off of him as good cutters and good shooters off ball. They have good depth, really high-level role players. They're well-coached. They compete their asses off. They don't beat themselves. Just really exceptional stuff for a team this young. But yeah, man, they are juiced with talent, and they are ready to make the most of it right now. But they're only going to get better. And they are going to reach a point, Logan, where you have no choice but to turn all of those assets they've accumulated into more win-now talent. Like, they have three first-round picks this year's draft. None of them are their own, by the way, and they're basically keeping that pace for the next half decade. So there's going to come a point where they just decide, you know what, I think we're ready to win the title this year. And I think Giddy is another guy you can throw in there as a real asset. I know that people are super enamored with his passing and his TikToks. I just think that archetype of a guy who's not a good athlete who's a brutal shooter. I mean, a crazy and efficient scorer, bro. He's at 48% true shooting this year. And the Thunder have been way worse with him on the floor every year of his career when you look at the on-off numbers, who then also can't defend. Like, just give me a big athletic wing. Maybe they don't have a standout trait like Giddy's passing, but you can only do so much with that passing when you're not a high-level threat to score really in any way. And that's just my big concern with him. And how does he fit on a team that already has multiple high-level ball handlers? Like, they make it work because they're just that good. But I think that somebody else eating up those minutes who is maybe equally talented but just in a more fitting role could make this team even better. And they're going to add a star talent down the line. I just don't see how they can miss out when they have this lump of assets. So I, if I were to just say, hey, let me sign on for any GM job in the league, there's no question it would be the Thunder. My only concern would be screwing up what Sam Presti has already built because he is the best GM of this century. Dude, I, you brought up uh, both aspects that I was going to go into uh, after the initial spiel. Uh, one, do we have any different expectations for them Uh you know, this season, because I know we were both really high on the Thunder. The second one, yeah, what do you do with Gideon Dort? Because I feel like those are the two really movable pieces here that you could get tangible assets back for. And I think you already have guys on the bench that could step up into higher volume roles. Like, I would trust Kaysan to start tomorrow with SGA. You know what I mean? Like, I love Kaysan. Uh, I hope I, I hope at some point this season I can do a breakdown on him, because I, I, I think he's such a great winning, just winning player. He does all the little things, man. Defense, moving off ball. He's a good pick and roll ball handler. He's a great shooter off ball. He just, I think him and SGA would complement each other so well in terms of how both, how they both can play on ball and off ball. And then, you know, I don't know if you want to start this guy, but I think in a six man role alongside Kaysan or SGA with more minutes, like Isaiah Joe, I feel like with how much of a flamethrower he's been from behind the arc. Like, just put that kid out there and let him go get buckets, man. Shout out Peyton T. Gallagher, friend of the show, early on the Isaiah Joe train. I don't know. The Thunder are in a really good spot, man. I don't know what the timeline looks like. Like you said, I don't know when the time is to pull the trigger on the Giddy Dort trade. I don't know if it's this year. I don't know if it's next year. But I feel like that's an inevitability. But those are still 
I, yeah, I, I guess what I want to say is they're still two really valuable assets. I just don't know if OKC is the exact right spot for, for those two guys. I think they can be really valuable elsewhere. Um, it's about finding those puzzle pieces that are going to fit well uh, alongside SGA and Chet, but they're not far away, man. The Thunder feel like they're right on the cusp, dude, and it's only a matter of time. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if Dort would shoot like this for an entire season, then I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. really want to give him up. But yeah, it's not going to be this year. I think you have to be content with just being this good, this young. But maybe next year when you start thinking about, all right, do we want to give Josh Giddy a big extension or do we want to try to sell high? Frankly, I think opinion of him around the league is just going to continue to decline before this year might be the highest that the league ever is on Josh Giddy, but you'll still get somebody to buy in. I mean, he has a special trait and he's still going to be viewed as a positive asset. So I think maybe it's next year. And when it does happen, the rest of the league, man, is going to be in serious trouble. They already are. You talk about how high we were on the Thunder. Being really high on them for me was like, I think they're the five seed. I think they're a really tough out in the first round of the playoffs that maybe can beat anybody, but I'll probably take some of the more established top dogs of the conference. I'm higher on them now. I really, really think they can make a Western Conference Finals run. It's as we've said, everybody is flawed, but they check so, so many boxes. It's incredible. And when we talk about the best rebuilds in recent memory, maybe some people would say the Nuggets because... Jokic, Murray, and MPJ were all homegrown, but that's another team. They didn't ever bottom out nearly enough. Like, Jamal's the only top 10 pick out of that group. And then they did bring in some really key pieces like KCP, Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown. They don't feel like as true of a rebuild to me. What Sam Presti did 15 years ago, I mean, hitting in back-to-back-to-back drafts with KD, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden, and now to have so consistently kept OKC competitive when they wanted to be, in the years after KD left. And now the rebuild that they've done is the most successful that we can think of since a literal dynasty started, man. I mean, that dude is the GOAT. He is the GOAT. But as we said, the Thunder are not alone in being a really good, really young team this year. Another who has stood out is the Orlando Magic, who currently have the best defensive rating in basketball, who are sitting at 9-5, and five. Another team that we were excited about, that we were high on coming into this year, but not this high on. What do you make of what we've seen from Orlando? And do you think that they actually have the best defense in basketball? I don't know about the best defense in basketball. That's a tough question. I feel like I feel like I marginally still prefer the Timberwolves. Uh, maybe Boston, too. I don't know. That's I don't know if I can say best in the league, but... Orlando's damn close, man. Like, the two things that I really like about Orlando. One, it's the, I think the culture of Orlando, a couple of things. I I think that Jamal Mosley, I want to give him a ton of credit. Of Guys just buying in, playing engaged, and working hard, possession to possession, night to night. I want to give a big shout out to him. I also think it's a continuity thing. I think these guys love each other. Like, not to get into their locker room, but like. That's really nice of you to say. (laughs) I hope they do. (laughs) I really think the Magic guys, like, I don't know, man. They've got a, they got a special thing. I think they really gel together. I think they've played together for a couple of years now. I think it's a really underrated thing in today's NBA. You know, we get caught up in star talent. We get caught up in just ability and raw skill, right? 
And I don't know if the Clippers guys love each other. I know the Orlando Magic guys love each other. They, they, you know, like, they're, they're brothers. They're going to go fight for their brother, bro. They're going to go fight for their boys. And there's a... They got a little more heart in them, man. Orlando plays with a lot of heart A lot night. more heart. A lot yeah. more heart. <laughs> and so that's an aspect of it. But they've also got great size and length. Paolo, 6'10", 7'1", wingspan. Franz, 6'9", 7'0", wingspan. John Isaac, 6'10", with a 7'1", wingspan. And they've got dogs. Like, those are the wing guys. On the perimeter, you've got Suggs, who is... I did a video breakdown on Suggs when he was a rookie. I called him Orlando's savior. Yeah. May not be their savior, but he's an important cog in the machine. Suggs is a dog. That was my favorite quality of him out of Gonzaga is just how hard he played. And when he's out there on the floor, he's just got a motor, man. 6'4", 205 pounds, 6'6", wingspan, great tools. Fultz, 6'4", 6'9", wingspan. And then Anthony Black, they've been giving him some burn too, we liked. Great defender, 6'7", 6'10", wingspan. So they're dogs. They've got size. And uh, we've seen it. Like you said, number one in defensive rating, 106.4. They held the electric Pacers offense to 44 points and a half, which is honestly incredible. Uh, Versus the Raptors, they forced 24 turnovers. They scored 31 points off of them in that game. Uh, they They do such a great job of that, too, turning defense into offense in transition. And... The two things that I think are most remarkable about this run is, one, the return that we have seen from John Isaac. They're 11.3 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. Just such a great perimeter asset and help side rim protector to have. He was a guy that we didn't, you know, even anticipate playing well this season or playing just because he's been hurt. We don't know what to expect with him coming back on the floor. But it's also because Wendell Carter Jr. has played in five games. Now, I wasn't ever the biggest Wendell Carter Jr. guy when it comes to, you know, being a straight-up rim protector. There are things that Wendell does that I like. Floor spacing, catch and shoot. Uh, You know, he's a solid big man. Wendell Carter's a really solid big man, but he's not a great vertical athlete, right? He's only 6'9". He does have a 7'3 wingspan. Carter's only played in five games, so I figured when he went down and went out, they'd be in trouble. Goga Batate stepped in here and been really good, too. 24 minutes a game, two-plus blocks a night uh, in the stretch that Wendell Carter's been out since he injured his hand versus the Jazz. He's holding players 12% below their field goal percentage inside six feet. Among qualified players, guys that have played enough games and defended enough shots at the rim per game, that's the fourth-best mark in the league among qualified players. I mean, they've got size. They've got depth all over. They've got heart. They play their asses off. Like, I don't really see a reason why. And again, without a starter that's been out there, They've been dominating. I don't really, you know, all this added up. I, I don't know how Orlando doesn't keep this up throughout the season, man. I think it has, a, again, a lot to do with that culture and identity of Orlando. And this is a team that, I'll tell you, man, two years ago, I watched every freaking Orlando Magic basketball game, man. This was not how the Magic played. It was it was a lot different. And it's it's really coming together, man. I, I fully buy into the the Magic's defensive identity, man. I, I believe in it. I think it's I think it's real and I think they can keep this up throughout the whole season. Yeah, what they are doing is remarkable. And whether or not they are literally the best defense in basketball long term, they are absolutely in that top tier. And I don't think there is a team in the league that is this strong defensively at every position maybe the Timberwolves have the better defense because of their dominant dual rim protection setup their interior defense and then they have two really good point of attack guys with Jaden McDaniels and Ant Edwards but Mike Conley's just okay I mean he's not like a guy that you're gonna super attack exploit 
But I look at the totality of this group, and I don't see a guy who's who's average. Everybody is playing at such a high level defensively. Like, we'll see if Goga can keep this up, but he is protecting the hell out of the rim. He's got nine blocks in the last two games, and then he's got really good hands. So he's a guy who can affect those interior passes and generate turnovers. But really, the backcourt, I think, is the most impressive. Suggs is an elite athlete. His motor does not stop. He is a ball pressure hound. He forces turnovers like crazy. He contests everything. It's just an awesome example of how an uber-talented guy, a top-five pick, can underwhelm early in their career and still make the most out of what they do well. He's always had that in him, but he is having such a positive impact on the game by leaning into it to the largest possible extent. And then offensively, he's just figuring out enough, right? Like he's actually shooting the ball decently, which his rookie year was awful. Last year was still pretty bad. Now he's a solid 35% three-point shooter out in transition. He's getting out there and running. Every once in a while, he'll cut, weaponize his athleticism. It's no longer the vision pre-draft that maybe some people had. Logan, I know you love Jalen Suggs of this being a guy who can run your offense out of pick and roll and whatnot. That's just not what you're going to get from him. But you're getting a real high-impact winning basketball player, and that is awesome considering where he was at as a rookie. And the one other thing that I've loved from Suggs this season is how much more physical he's been and aggressive driving mm-hmm. the hoop, right? Like, Yes. You're you're right, because Suggs was always a janky pull-up shooter. I know that I kind of got caught up in his pull-up jump shooting because he had all these big shots during the tournament run. And I was like, oh, that's going to be his primary strength. Suggs' primary strength is getting downhill and weaponizing his strength. And he's a really good finisher through contact. And you're right, especially in this situation with guys like Fultz uh, or like Cole Anthony, when you have other scoring guards, you can play off ball. I, I completely agree with you. I think he's leaning into his strengths more than ever this season. Yeah, and he's been finishing at the rim more efficiently. He still has no touch from that intermediate range, but that's fine. You don't need him to be a really good offensive player. You just need him to be an okay one, and he is right now. And then Anthony Black, as a rookie defender, is a monster, bro. Like, it's tough to overstate. This is a huge backcourt, and this is a crazy athletic backcourt, and these are two maniacally competitive dudes whose motors just do not stop, bro. Like, they will recover from positions you just don't think it's possible. They will pursue you with a level of intensity. They will apply a level of ball pressure. They're just like, man, no other backcourt in the league is really doing it like this. They're just a nightmare to deal with. And then, yeah, you have two big athletic wings who can handle multiple matchups. You have Goga on that back line doing a really good job right now. And their best defender is on their bench, bro. You gave the on-off stats for Jonathan Isaac. He's averaging 2.4 stocks in 14 minutes per game. He is one of the premier defenders, one of the premier defensive playmakers we've had in this league in the past decade. He just can never stay on the floor. And one of the things when we were talking about our preseason expectations for the Magic, I was like, if Jonathan Isaac is out there, then I give Orlando another five wins from where I have them right now. I had them in the the nine seed, tied for the same record with the Pacers, actually. And I wish I had been higher on both those teams. I had them in my seven and eight. Uh, Oh, well, I liked them both. But what's interesting is it felt like with both of them, there was a very clear side of the ball in which they were going to be very good. I thought the Pacers were going to be a very good offense and a below-average defense. I thought Orlando, despite being young, is going to be a very good defense and a below-average offense. I just didn't think either one would be literally the best in the league on the side of the ball where they are great, and that has been the case for both of them. Number one defense, Orlando. Number one offense, Indiana. That is rare stuff from cores this young. But 
Isaac is a monster. And the level of matchup versatility, what he can do with his length and size around the rim, and how good he is on the perimeter. I mean, there are just few defenders of this caliber. And if he gets tuned up to the point where he doesn't work as a starter here, but if he's playing 20 minutes a night instead of 14, if he's pushing 25, like if he's healthy enough to handle that, then good Lord, that's just another really high impact player that they have. So they're loaded defensively. But it's the same fundamental concern that I had coming into this year. They've been so good defensively that they've raised their ceiling. But I still think spacing is an issue here. Nobody is a seamless offensive creator. Like Franz and Paolo are these big wings who can who can attack the rim, who can score on multiple levels, who can play make. But it's not super easy when there's not good shooting around them. So that's going to limit what they can be. And if they're an average offense, I would consider that a success and... That just, again, makes it hard to win multiple playoff series in a row against really good teams. But nobody is going to want to play them. Nobody is going to want to have to deal with these dudes for seven games. And can they win a playoff series? I might not bet on it, but I really think that they can. Being this big, this physical, this athletic defensively, and being even capable offensively. And I do think Franz is going to play better as the year goes along. Having Fultz out there more, first of all, I don't know if we can count on that. And I don't really like his fit offensively, but he is another talented offensive player. Maybe you could help things a little bit. Regardless, they're just really, really good for where they are at in terms of the timeline of their rebuild. And it's been so fun to watch. I think you lay out uh, my primary concerns with them in a playoff series for sure. It's offensively, but I think something that's going to keep Orlando afloat in a playoff series and throughout the season, regardless, if, is two guys we haven't mentioned uh mo wagner is awesome off the yes. bench in terms of just bucket getting like you talk about the value of having a floor spacing five you know again they don't have great spacing but when wagner's out there in his chemistry man i love i know i talk about this anytime we bring up orlando dude his chemistry with franz is so sick like i wonder you can just why tell. <laughs> i think they're both german oh I say. yeah uh, makes sense. yeah it's got to be the german connection it's awesome dude you just it's like a peyton marvin thing it's like when you know, me and my dad had this connection, dude, when I'd run routes against the Figment uh, defense, dude. Me and him would oh, always dot up each other. He always nice. knew what route I was running, dude. Uh, it, it's it's awesome to see. But him, uh, Mo off the bench is awesome. You know, 10 to 15 a night consistently. And then Cole yeah. Anthony, too, who, you know, yes. Cole's a, a little more inconsistent. But again, in that six-man role as a bench, I don't know if you can ask for a better a better guy out there. I, I love I love this Orlando Magic team. And their depth, I think, is is really underrated. Because like, like we said... With Goga, or excuse me, with Wendell Carter out, man, I feel like they're just they're deep, man, and that's it's yeah. really valuable uh, in terms of regular regular season production too. Um, Absolutely, I'm astounded. I'm just astounded that it's happened this fast, man, with these teams. And you didn't mention Gary Gary Harris Harris, who is also oh, yeah, good. man, yeah, uh, they have really built something here, and. Uh, we haven't seen much of Jet Howard. I don't think that we're really going to. G-League. Yeah, I did not like Jet as a prospect all that much. Joe Ingles, unfortunately, is uh, having a, a real rough go at it in terms of scoring the basketball. But they don't need those dudes. Like, just with the guys we mentioned, they're 10 deep with quality basketball players. And I think that they're a team that, again, anybody is going to be uncomfortable to face in a playoff series. And there's no question they are going to be in the playoffs this year. And the same goes for the Indiana Pacers. Uh, maybe not the discomfort part, because they make it pretty easy on you to score, 
but it is even harder to stop them than it is easy to score on them. And we just saw the Atlanta Hawks get that full experience. One of the highest scoring regular season games ever. Indiana picking up that 157-152 dub. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. I made a whole video breakdown on Tyrese Halliburton a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and how great he has been. But how impressed are you by what Indiana is doing? How legit do you think this is? Welcome to basketball heaven, baby. Oh Indiana. Yeah. This is... I the, didn't the Hoosiers weren't doing it like this, bro. Let me tell you. The picket fence is nothing compared to little Hallie Spain pick and roll. Dude, the Hoosiers would get ran, man. It wouldn't yeah. be close. This is what I envisioned from Halliburton when he came out of the draft, dude. I was so elated as a Sacramento Kings fan that we had drafted Tyrese Halliburton. I thought he was the steal of the draft. This long kid can shoot the ball from behind the arc. He's got great handle, great feel, and is a passing maestro. I was devastated when we traded him for DeMontis Sabonis because I said it at the time when the trade happened. You know, I just thought he had a higher ceiling as an offensive engine than De'Aaron Fox, and I still feel the same way. I think I think it's a mutually beneficial trade. You know, I think it fit the Kings' window better. I think the Kings didn't want to give up on Fox. He was their guy, so I think it was mutually beneficial. If we were just looking at basketball fit and guys I'd like to build around, I would have taken Tyrese, but it's remarkable, man. His unselfishness, his vision, his feel, it, it's crazy, dude. I, I always thought he could be this as a playmaker, but I never really saw the scoring ceiling with Halliburton. You know, I always thought he was just a little too janky as a pull-up jump shooter, the the catapult creation. It's a funny-looking jumper, man. But 
If it goes in, who really cares, man? Rick Barry was making underhanded free throws at a 90% clip. They all goofed on him and thought he was funny. He was getting buckets. That's what Halley's doing. 56% on pull-ups, 51% on pull-up threes, 43% on step-backs. What? You know, with that janky jumper, it works, man. And so that's the one remarkable thing from Halliburton is I just never anticipated 25 a night. Right now he's 25, 12, and 4 on 52, 46, 93 splits. Uh, the Pacers are number one in offensive rating, 122.6. They're number one in assists per game. They're 20.6 points per 100 possessions better with Halliburton on the floor, 15.8 better offensively. An offensive rating of 127.8 with Halley. They're still pretty good, 112 uh, without him. Uh, it's it's crazy, and all the pieces just fit together, man. That's, that's the one thing that I li- really liked about Halliburton is it's not just that it's like buying into a defensive culture when you have a guy this unselfish that is looking to make plays for you, it encourages you as an off-ball player to be more aware, to play off of him, and to play good basketball. Like, all of these guys are just empowered to be more engaged off-ball, and Halliburton unlocks all of them. Miles Turner is, like, the perfect big man that you could have alongside Halley. Attacking and abusing mismatches on the low block actually spacing the floor, having Buddy Heald off ball as a 40% shooter, Bruce Brown as a supplementary ball handler and kind of do-it-all guy, Aaron Neesmith as another guy, Obi Toppin, an explosive rim runner, can attack closeouts. Like, they're loaded, man, and they're all amplified by Halliburton and encouraged to play selfless, beautiful, flowing basketball, and they just score points in a flurry. I I agree with you, Carson. If I am a team in the Eastern Conference I do not want to run into the Orlando Magic because I think they can suffocate us. And I do not want to run into the Indiana Pacers because it's a track meet. Try and keep up with us. Like, here's some hypotheticals. Like, I don't know what I'd predict right now because, again, we've got a long way out before the playoffs and before we can really see what these matchups are going to look like. But, like, hey, if it's the Cavaliers versus Indiana, right, or if it's the Cavaliers versus Orlando with their offensive struggles, you know, who am I going to pick? I don't know if I pick Cleveland. The Knicks with their Julius Randle problem, you know? These are teams that I think could win a playoff series. And like you said, dude, I, I do not, I would not want to see them in the first round. They would they would scare me. Yeah. I have some regrets about a couple of Halley takes that I've had throughout the years. First of all, there was so much I loved about him as a prospect, but I could not get over my concerns about him as a pull-up shooter and what that yeah, meant for dude. his ceiling as an offensive creator. Like, he wasn't an efficient pull-up shooter in college. He was a great catch-and-shooter, always is that phenomenal touch. But that ugly-ass release, you think, is a lot tougher to get off when you're in an on-ball situation you're trying to create that shot for yourself. And uh, it's unbelievable. He's making the second-most pull-up threes in basketball. He's, like, as deadly. He can pull from so deep. He's so comfortable on the step-backs, and he is so deadly accurate i mean he had nine threes by the end of the third quarter in that game yesterday and scored 26 points in the third and that's another thing that i feel generally some people miss the mark on and maybe i even undersold how great he was in this capacity and that is just how dominant he is as a scorer like coming into this year i remember seeing a twitter debate about if hallie was actually warping defenses if he was demanding lots of attention to create opportunities for his teammates or if he was just sort of doing like the Rajon Rondo type beat where you're basically just like 
hitting dudes in their spots. You're not really doing anything, but you have the ball so much that you rack up assists. No disrespect to Rondo, but I just mean like he's not a dude who was really going to threaten you as a scorer and therefore open up a lot of those opportunities that the really great offensive players do, but he unequivocally does. He can take over scoring at any moment, and you've seen that, dude. The Hornets tried to trap him late in their game because he had 43 on them, and he dissected them. The Hawks were trapping him before half court in the fourth quarter of this game. Anything to get the ball out of his hands. That is the level of offensive threat that you are looking at right now. And yeah, he has good complementary talent alongside him. The Pacers are an elite shooting team. Their third and threes made, their fourth and three-point percentage. He's part of that, but like lethal spot-up dudes all around. I laugh because you just said another guy for Aaron Neesmith. Like, Aaron Neesmith is that dude. Oh, he's good, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. It was just funny that that was all he got. Miles Turner is the perfect pick-and-pop guy who can bully these mismatches. Bruce Brown's Aaron a great secondary ball there, handler. Bro. Aaron Neesmith is out there. Like, he's an elite, elite shooter. He's a really good transition player. He's more comfortable putting the ball on the floor and attacking closeouts now than he has been in previous years. So props to all those dudes. And then they lean into another thing Tyrese does really well, which is push the tempo. He is maybe the best hit-ahead passer in the NBA today, but also just as a ball handler, right? He can see everything at his height. He can threaten you as a driver, and then he can make pretty much every pass in the books. And Obi is a really good partner there. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. Obi Toppin's a good basketball player, if we're just being honest. <laughs> but he's athletic, and uh, he runs the floor hard. And as a cutter, he's pretty good. And that's kind of all they're asking him to do. Like, he still hasn't figured out the shot. And he's got no wiggle to his game. Reasons that I wasn't super high on him as a prospect. But in this role, shit, Tyrese makes him look all right. And that's just what he does. He elevates everybody around him. He is a true offensive genius. Nobody has ever averaged 24 and 12 in a season, Logan. Nobody. And he is doing it on 68% true shooting. And he's in rarefied air. The last time we saw a dude this young carry an offense... To the top of the league like this was Luka Doncic in his second year when he made the Dallas Mavericks the best offense in the NBA and by offensive rating, the best in NBA history, which isn't the best way to measure it because offensive rating is just climbing league-wide. Like the Pacers offensive rating right now is six and a half points higher than what the Mavs did that year. But when you're looking at a dude who just has spot-up shooters around him, who has okay rim runners, but he is so completely in control of the game, such a dominant scoring threat and such a brilliant playmaker, making the most of the attention he demands, amplifying everybody around him to be the best offense in basketball, that's what Howie's doing right now. There's nobody approaching a second star here, but he's one of the best shooters ever. Turner is a really good complimentary big. But there's one dude making it all go, and that's what he's doing. And Trey's another guy who really young, carried an offense to be really, really good. Like in his fourth year, the Hawks were the number two offense, but I do prefer Howie's skill set. I prefer Howie in basically all these head-to-head -head comparisons that we're seeing right now because whenever a guy takes a leap it feels like that's where the mind go all right would you take this guy or that guy our friends over at pick a side they love it they love doing the game with howie or fox howie or trey howie or maxi and i'm taking howie over all of those guys right now i think when you compare him to trey howie is so brutally efficient as a scorer he is a better pull-up shooter and he doesn't have those stretches where he can suffocate your offense by taking bad shots. He's never going to do that. He is never going to force the issue. He's always going to make the right play. And 
if there is any criticism of Halley offensively, it's that sometimes he's too willing to give up the ball early in a possession without creating a real advantage because he doesn't want things to stagnate. And that's like a really, really nitpicky thing because for the most part, it's just the second he sees that second defender, oh great, why would I try to score on two defenders? Let me make the most of the attention that I'm getting. Let me create for my teammate. And then he is less of a glaring liability defensively than a guy like Trey. He's still not good there, but he's less exploitable just because of his size and length advantages. Versus Maxi, you will not find a bigger Tyrese Maxi fan on the planet, bro. I have been hyping him up for so long since he was a draft prospect. I said he was the best pure scoring talent in that class. But there's just a difference in the ability to amplify teammates that is so, so significant. Maxi is a lethal pure scorer. But I do think he benefits from being the second best offensive player on his team alongside Joel Embiid. And look at the guy who has somehow, with role players alongside him, led a team offense to be better than what the Sixers have with both Maxi and Embiid. That's Halley, man. And it may not always show up on the stat sheet with the scoring numbers, but how consistently he is creating great shots for his teammates every possession down the floor. Maxi just is not at that level of master manipulation of the game. And then when it comes to Fox, bro, it's the same principle. Foxy is a tough-ass bucket, and his speed kills. And he is a great mid-range shooter right now. But the ability to, when you are getting trapped behind half court, rise up and fire a 40-foot bullet to Obi Toppin in the dunker spot, there's so few guys who can do that. And that is what Halley does routinely. The awareness coming out of pick and roll to have your eyes glued onto the popper so that you move a defender outside of the action up to try to challenge the pick and pop look so then you can hit a perfect skip pass to a dude on the opposite wing. Creating opportunities just with your IQ and your vision for the game. That is so rare. That ability to dissect you no matter the coverage just because of how brilliant you are mentally. I, that is invaluable to me. And as awesome as Fox may be as a scorer, he can't do that. He can't match the efficiency that Halley has because simultaneously you have to respect his playmaking so much. You're always screwed. He is one of the rare offensive players who is putting you in a constant trap. And I think he's an MVP candidate right now. I can't Ooh, overlook dude, what he's doing for this offense. You're on a burner right now. You're on a burner yeah. right now, Carson. I was just about to say, yeah. does he have MVP level upside? Man? Yeah, man. I can see what you're thinking, bro. You and Jimmy got that that uh, that chemistry out on the football field against nobody. You and I got that chemistry on the pod. I do. I think it would be really hard for him to win it because of the level that Embiid and Jokic are playing at right now. But he's on the short list. I think he's a top five MVP candidate right now. I mean, this singular elevation of an offense is rare. And and it's incredible what he's doing right now. I'm I'm not gonna lie, like I'm still upset like a little bit that, that the Kings made the move, man. I'm I'm not gonna lie. Like Yeah. I will say I don't think this is going to end up being a win-win. I think oh, maybe no, it's that's a win -win what I, yeah. right now because the Kings <laughs> mm -hmm. just had a great season. Mm -hmm. I think Halley is going to be a good bit better than Fox long-term. And I love and Fox, but Halley is different, man. I, I completely agree. That's what I saw at the time, man. It was just like I can see a, a greater vision with Halley meaning more to great offense. And it's it's awesome seeing it fully visualized. And again, I, I didn't even see – you know, I saw 20 and 10 a night. You know, I saw 22 and 10 efficiently. I didn't see MVP level upside. I certainly didn't see this level of scoring upside. Halley's the real deal, dude, and it's – 
Not that you could put anybody alongside him, but I really think that's the beauty is if you have any aspect of an offensive scoring game that you excel at, if you are a great shooter, if you are a great rim runner, Halley's going to maximize your abilities and make you a better basketball player. And the Pacers are on the rise, man. I'm, I, again, man, I didn't expect Halley to do it this fast, dude. One off season and boom. He's there. He's taking the leap. He's one of my one of my favorite players in the league, dude. He's awesome. Yeah, and he did take a real leap last year. I mean, he was obviously an all-star, but now we're looking at a top 15 level player. And when I talk about the Halley regrets, I can't believe that I didn't have him in my top 10 guys, 25 and under to build around. I had Trey in that 10 spot over him. I would boot Trey in a second. I would move Halley above a few guys, man. Like he is special, special. And he, another thing that he's so brilliant at is taking care of the ball. Like, generally, the truly great playmakers can't have super low turnover numbers because they're going to attempt things that other dudes just won't. And more often than not, they're going to be such great passers that that pays off. It goes in the right direction. But every once in a while, guess what? Turns out you actually couldn't fit in that pass, you know, trying to sneak it between two defenders, a bounce past Aaron Gordon, Jokic, or you couldn't connect on that touchdown pass in transition where you thought that he was behind the defense. It's like what you see with a great quarterback, right? A, a Patrick Mahomes, a guy who's going to try stuff that other dudes just won't. More often than not, it's going to pay off, but also he's probably going to make a couple more mistakes than your Alex Smith, your hyper-conservative guy. And Halley isn't Jokic level in terms of his audacity as a passer. But he still takes a lot of relatively high-risk, high-reward passes. He just doesn't do anything stupid. He's never reckless, and he's super accurate. So he's able to create such high-value opportunities without also the downside of high turnover numbers. Like, there were a couple times last game where he's dealing with a trap, and, you know, maybe he makes a mistake. But for the most part, I mean, his turnover rate is crazy low, while his assist rate is the highest in the league. I don't need to say any more. If you guys want to watch the video essay I made about this dude, you can. But I just don't think we can say that the Halley hype is going too far. I understand that it's been uh, 12 games of him playing, but this is so real. This is so, so real. And when you're watching him every time out there, you can just see it. There's nothing you can do to mess with this guy right now. It's unbelievable. Any final thoughts, Logan, before we get out of here? Jairus Walker will be him one day. Not right now. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I cannot wait for Jairus Walker to actually play. That's going to be really great. One last young core that I think does deserve a bit of a shout-out. I'm definitely lower on them than any of the other ones, but the Rockets have at least taken a step in the right direction, and of course, they're on a skid now. They're back down to 6-6. Six and six. I don't think they're a legitimately good basketball team. Uh, I'm bummed that we haven't seen more Amen, and Jabari has been playing Better than last year, but didn't quite take the full leap that I did. Jalen Green is still struggling as a scorer with efficiency. Like, there are issues there. But culturally, I just think they've taken such a step in the right direction. The level that they're defending at, Shangun just keeps getting better. They're a step down from all these other cores, both in terms of how much I like them right now and going forward, honestly. But they've still taken a real step in the right direction, and I think they deserve props for that. Unlike the Detroit Pistons, who I was excited about through three games and unfortunately just suck, I do want to have a real Cade conversation at some point down the line because I think it's very interesting how some people are viewing that situation. I understand that the efficiency is brutal, and he does have a couple offensive limitations, but he's basically an offensive hell. Yeah, man, he's in spacing hell. Yeah, he is. No, he really is. So we'll have that conversation some other time but for now 
Hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you did, the good news is you can find all of our shows with video at the at the Nerd Sesh YouTube page, not the Volume YouTube page. I repeat, every Volume show is now on its own YouTube page, so that's where you will go for the full shows. You can also listen to our podcast across audio platforms. You can follow us across social, TikTok and Instagram at Nerd Sesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord. That is at the link tree across our social media bios. And you can check out our merch. I'm wearing the Nerd Sesh hat. We got flags. Logan's got the volume hat. All of that is also at our link tree or at thevolume.com. So with that, as always, appreciate you guys. Very happy Thanksgiving to you. I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.